The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, October 13th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Oh my God, Friday the 13th. What are the odds? It's one in seven. Exactly one in seven. It recurs every month. That said, President Trump today announced he was quite upset with Iran. And as guardian of our great nation, he did what any man of action must do. He kicked it all to Congress. Sort of like how he punted on the ACA, told Congress do something about it, or DACA. He was like, Congress, you guys do something about it, or the wall, or we'll get infrastructure done. Once Congress does something about it, and taxes, oh yeah, we're just waiting for Congress to do something about it. It was like that famous line in his convention speech, you know the one, where he listed all the problems, and he said, and I alone can ask Congress to do something about it. So on Iran, he's not certifying that Iran is complying with the nuclear deal. Uh, He calls it decertification. It's not really a thing. It's like non-certification. It doesn't mean much. It's a warning, or really what it is, is an ask that Congress comes up with some teeth to maybe mete out some punishments. Here's a problem with asking for Congress to come up with some teeth. Have you seen the average senator? Teeth uh, right there in the upper right hand drawer, sir. The other odd thing about Trump's claim that Iran is in compliance is that they are in compliance. Oh, they're a bad country. They fund terrorism. That's true. They launch missiles. That is also true. But that's not not complying, not really in violation. And Trump gave this away a little. I think this was mostly an accident how he randomly will emphasize a word that he's reading off the teleprompter, uh, maybe to act like he's intense or at least has read the script once before he got up there on stage. But I, I, I really think he chose the wrong word of emphasis here. Iran is not living up to the spirit of the deal. The spirit of the deal. And Trump would know this because he is the author of the mega bestseller, Trump, the spirit of the deal. It's still available where better trade paperbacks are remaindered. On the show today, I take you to all the hottest political races. Wait, what political races? It's an off year. Oh, not for mayors, it isn't. But first, a look at the Harvey Weinstein story through a media lens. We will, in upcoming shows, get to the workplace and sexism issues. But today, I want to talk about the stories that broke and what these stories indicate about what else in journalism is broken. There is no one better to talk to about all of this than David Folkenflick of NPR. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying, 
unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Harvey Weinstein is the Hollywood producer known for such projects as Air Bud and having harassed maybe half the female population of that town. David Folkenflick, on the other hand, is NPR's media correspondent, and he's been covering the story of how the Weinstein story broke. Also, because Weinstein himself is media, we'll talk about that. Hello, David. How are you? Hello, Mike. Good to be with you. So this is one of those stories, and you hear this or you see this often with uh, sexual harassers. We saw it with Cosby. We saw it with Raj or Ailes. People use phrases like open secret, and we could talk about what that means means. But if something's an open secret, you would think that reporters would be able to get a hold of it. Why weren't reporters able to get a hold of it until this week? I think you saw reporters every now and then getting a hold of a little element of Mm -hmm. it. In 2015, the New York Police Department did essentially a sting on Weinstein when a woman came to them and said he had sexually assaulted her the night before. And that tape formed the core of Ronan Farrow's pretty impressive story for the New Yorker. And in the tabloids, there were little accounts of this. The, it, you know, there were short elements saying he'd been questioned and Weinstein said it was all a misunderstanding and it, it just sort of stopped there. Mm-hmm. In Gawker, there was – I mean I think the best way of describing it is this kind of twilight news account you know, where it's not quite grounded. It's not quite uh, substantiated. You don't have – People putting their names to accusations, but you do have Gawker saying this guy uh, sexually harasses women and it's a problem and actresses in, in Hollywood are aware of it. And Gawker at times performed this role between gossip and speculation and reporting and that's where that inhabited. That's not good enough for the New York Times or it shouldn't be. That's not good enough for NPR or it shouldn't be. But – that's what it kind of means to be an open secret. It's something that people talk about. If you think about Gawker, you know, which was sued out of business and many people criticized it during its existence. During the Hulk Hogan suit. During yeah. the Hulk Hogan suit. And I was among the people who have been critical of how they approach certain kinds of stories. But it, it performed a role in sort of piercing the veil a little bit and saying, well, there's stuff that's troubling that people should know about and that people in journalism are talking about because they're working on it. People at the New York Times worked on it. People at uh, the New Yorker worked on it, Cataletta. But there, there are a number of news organizations uh, that over time tried to get a piece of it. Sharon Waxman, who runs The Wrap, but used to be a reporter, among other places, uh, for The New York Times and I think The Washington Post. When she was at The Times, she went to Italy to try to nail down some details of this guy who was on Weinstein's payroll to procure women. And she says The Times basically, you know, artificially abbreviated the reporting on that and yeah. kind of cut it off. So, right. And this was back in 2004. And one of the arguments was, well, it's Harvey Weinstein. He's not an elected official. Ultimately, if the news organizations had more of an appetite for it, would we have seen this story before now? It, it's, I get the impression that they weren't like maybe some reporters were hot to get the story, but at the upper reaches, it wasn't as much of a burning story as it would have been if it were an elected official. 
Well, for, let's take first things first. I think if it's an elected official, you have somebody on the public payroll that yeah. people have voted into office. I mean, that's your very first tier of accountability should go to public officials and extremely powerful institutions. And Miramax and the Weinstein Company are very influential institutions rather than perhaps powerful institutions. But he projected power. Mm -hmm. He surrounded himself with the top tier of Hollywood. He surrounded himself with people like the Clintons and President Obama. We are in a time now, I think, thanks to the allegations that have really been kind of embraced as true against Bill Cosby, against the late Roger Ailes, against uh, Bill O'Reilly, and let's not forget against then-candidate, now-President Donald Trump. It's perhaps more fertile moment to make these accusations. I also think there have been people over time who have tried very hard to get people on the record and to get substantiating documentation. So if you think about what gave the New York Times piece power, there were two elements. One was Ashley Judd put her name to it. Very famous person. Yeah. But they also had a report from somebody inside the company, the production company, saying this is a problem. Multiple women have alleged this. This behavior is not professional and it's not right and we need to address it. That gave the Times more than simply saying somebody is claiming this. Mm -hmm. That gave the Times ballast. Ballast. And in fact, I think that leveraged women to go on the record for the Times. If you look at the Ronan Farah piece at The New Yorker, he had multiple women going on the record in quite some detail with patterns that were echoed one another of women who didn't even know one another. Right. Like the Cosby accusations, like the Ailes, a lot of the Ailes accusations. Having the raw audio yeah. of what it was like for Harvey Weinstein to be hectoring and badgering and trying to bully a woman into his hotel room and have layered on top of that, whether or not it's criminal, his acknowledgement that he had touched her breast intentionally without her knowledge. And it was a thing that he did. Uh, he, his own words, it's a thing I do. Yeah. Meant that there was substantiation for this. In the past, I don't think we've had that level of substantiation. You're asking whether news organizations, if they had perhaps been in the same mindset, would have been able to confirm this a dozen years ago. And God knows that would have been a great help if, you know, nipped this stuff in the bud, saved yeah. a lot of women from harassment. But the women have to put their names to things. You know, uh, Rose McGowan is now openly assailing Weinstein and other people that she's accusing of being harassers on Twitter in a way where she had signed a nondisclosure agreement, I guess, two decades ago from what she says was a rape incident. And now she feels comfortable coming forward. The terrain has shifted in terms of perhaps the appetite of news organizations, but the willingness also of people in a position to confirm these things, to participate. And that's huge. The Ronin New Yorker piece, the Ronin Farrow New Yorker piece came out, I think, in between two big Times pieces a couple days after the Times piece. But of course, it was in the works for a long, long time. What do we make of the coincidence or not that both of these huge bombshells hit within days of each other? It's hard not to conclude, and I have not spoken to people at The New Yorker about this very question. It's hard not to conclude that The New Yorker felt both impelled to publish and liberated to publish by The New York Times going first. That is, big names had come forward, attached their names to it. The memo was there. The New Yorker would not be alone, enduring the wrath and the legal threats mm -hmm. uh, from uh, Weinstein's camp. And it felt safety in numbers on this. This was such a big target in some ways. I think both news organizations were happy somebody else was in the fray, which is not usually what you hear. So if we're – if what – at least in this part of the conversation, I'm trying to nail down the question of why did it take until now. We're trying to do that from the media side. The New Yorker and the New York Times both published within days of each other. It would be one thing if the answer is the reason they were able to do that is – 
Ashley Judd went on the record for both. But that's not actually the case. It's not it's not the case that the thing that pushed those reports over the top was, you know, the same incident. They both independently. Complimentary. They yeah. different. So is one it just, had the memo. The other right. had the tape. But one had this, Ashley Judd. The other it, had this right. woman saying that he had uh, raped her, uh, but saying on the record and explaining exactly how it occurred. So, these are yeah. these are sort of filling the picture whole, but not the same parts of the picture. Right. So the thing to know about that is, and it's good for the reader and it fills it in more, is what did the zeitgeist change at the exact time? What were the things that changed so that both of these pieces with two different sets of information could get the green light to publish? It is my understanding, and I want to be clear that this is from reading the statements of others as opposed to totally based on my reporting. Yes. It's my understanding that the Times has been working on this a while and that obviously Ronan Farrow has been working on this, he says, since I think late last year. And he had initially gotten Rose McGowan to go on camera and on on the record, and she withdrew it. She said the legal threats were just too great and the consequences for her were too dire. And that was part of the circumstances that NBC says led it to hold off. Uh, and we can talk about that in a minute. Mm-hmm. But my understanding is that the memo was the big release of the floodgate for the Times and that that was relatively recent development. And then it was able to get Ashley Judd to go on the record and then it published and then that at New Yorker felt liberated and felt compelled to sort of giddy up and get its thing in print that it had been working on as well. Okay. Let's talk about NBC, which employed Ronan Farrow. He had a show there. Uh, He's been working there, legitimately working there, not one of these holding contracts. I would go in and do a spot on MSNBC and see him and say hi all the time. But NBC didn't publish the story. Do they have business with Harvey Weinstein? It's my understanding that NBC Universal, the parent unit within Comcast that owns, uh, you know, Universal Pictures mm-hmm. and owns uh, TV production companies and owns uh, NBC and News and, and MSNBC, that they have done some business. I don't think they're in a ma- in business in a major way at the moment, but you know, there's a clear sense that in this large entertainment behemoth and conglomerate that. Comcast has. There are certainly a lot of ties in Hollywood. You think of a figure like Ron Meyer, who's uh, you know formerly the head of CIA, if, CIA if I'm not mistaken, the the huge agency there, who has all these ties in Hollywood. And the idea that NBC News is simply making decisions based on the newsworthiness of this is uh, is hard to discern in this case. You know, NBC News's president Noah Oppenheim spoke to staff because there's clearly a lot of frustration, a lot of skepticism, a lot of anger over the fact that this piece by an NBC per- news person appeared in The New Yorker. And he says, he came to us. It wasn't there. What we saw in The New Yorker, this magnificent, splendid piece wasn't there. We launched Ronan on this. We encouraged it. We paid for the early reporting on this. When he What he came to us wasn't ready. And so we encouraged him to find a print outlet. There isn't a binary choice in journalism that says, well, either you publish what you got in March or you say, Godspeed, you got to go. I mean, big news organizations have people and editors say all the time, let's do some more reporting on that. Right. Let's see where this goes. And for NBC to back off on something that could be such an explosive charge, you could argue maybe they think Harvey Weinstein isn't important enough to their viewers. But you've seen a lot of Well, they were so-called... wrong on that. If that was their news judgment, look, yeah. at, how, look at the reaction to this. But story. also, like you've seen a lot of so-called investigative reports on network newscasts and on network shows, including on NBC, that are based on a lot thinner read than simply the NYPD sting tape they had, including an admission yeah. by Harvey Weinstein that would allow you to leverage a lot of other concerns. And it is not incidental. I think I think it's really important to remember that a year ago, NBC News had the footage 
of Access Hollywood, where then-candidate Trump was boasting to Billy Bush about sexually assaulting a woman, saying, I can get away with it because I'm celebrity. And they blanched. And that surfaced, to the shame of a lot of journalists at that network, that surfaced the Washington Post. Right. And that's who broke that story. Yeah. And so you have these and two- Billy ins- Bush was their newly installed host of an hour of the Today Show at that point. That's right. Yeah. And so they had things to protect there. And they blanched and they blinked. And they seem to have done that again here. Ronan Farrow argues, and most investigative reporters will tell you this, whether or not they're correct. But he argues this, they had in their hands something that was absolutely reportable, broadcastable, and publishable. And they decided not to do that. And that's their choice. NBC says it wasn't ready. And it's hard externally to know. But it is clear to me that they were not inclined to go continue to pursue it. And I think that's a reflection on, on their judgment and their values there. What about, and this is a story you've reported on extensively, Roger Ailes and the timing of the Ailes revelations coming out relatively in a short period of time before this. But for the Roger Ailes revelations, would we know about Harvey Weinstein today? I think that the Ailes revelations affect all of this. And they affect the willingness of women to put their names to accusations and decide that they are not shamed by this happening, that the people who perpetrate this are the ones who should be ashamed. And that's a something that people have said for years, but that is a pivot in the women who endure this kind of treatment. Yeah. You know, that, that's, you know, Gretchen Carlson, who made her living for many years on a network not known for championing the rights for women, you know, used her iPhone to record the late Roger Ailes sexually harassing her in some incredibly demeaning ways and hinging the fortunes of her career on that. And our understanding of Ailes changed, I think, the understanding of people more broadly about what our expectations can be and should be. What isn't just, oh, that's just a guy being a guy. That's just, oh, you know, he's from a different age and it doesn't matter. Oh, we were brought up in a different time. Like that's you're what hearing, Weinstein said. He's you're, a, or the spokesperson. Uh, he's just a dinosaur. Yeah. What happened with Roger Ailes changed well, it's clearly changed our understanding of Fox News forever, but I think it's changed how we talk about this stuff, but broadened it out a little bit. I think the Bill Cosby stuff changed things too. Mm-hmm. And that was another hit for NBC, one of their most beloved legacy figures, not in the news side. You know, I think that the nature and the landscape has changed. And let's go back a moment to the nature of news coverage. That changed in part because of writing by Gawker and then a comic riff with a dark, dark underside by Hannibal Burris. Right. And those things changed how we looked at Cosby and women started to attest to what had happened there. And I think after Gretchen Carlson's lawsuit, you saw others come forward and attest to what happened there. And you saw the the corruption of Fox News in terms of its its workplace and what had been done there. And that's the nightmare scenario. And you're seeing that play out in this seemingly liberal bastion of this uh, production company out in Hollywood. Did the way Ailes, the reaction to what was revealed about Roger Ailes play out, is that Similar or different to what the reaction to Weinstein has been? I mean, the most important issue is how women are treated and how the issue is addressed, right? Mm -hmm. But it has been also interesting to watch uh, online and in commentaries on cable news, people split into partisan camps and conservatives just go after this avatar of liberalism, talk about Clinton. Why isn't she dealing with all this stuff? You know, it took a number of days for people in Hollywood and politics with ties to Weinstein to fully come forward, not only disassociate themselves, but denounce and acknowledge in very clear terms what was wrong and why, okay? 
For Roger Ailes, you know, he was dismissed by his company, but there are many to this day who say, well, he was never given a fair shot. You know, uh, people are trying to run Ailes and Eric Bowling and Bill O'Reilly, all of whom have, were forced out of the company, uh, run them out on a rail because of ideological reasons. Uh, some of these women, you know, can't be trusted. Let's put uh, stories in the press discrediting them. There's a significant conservative core when it came to Trump last year and when it came to Ailes and even O'Reilly didn't either want to acknowledge that these instances had credibility or that they were of consequence to the level that deserved this kind of outcome. With Weinstein, you've seen the pendulum really shift the other way. And I think that, you know, it is a measure of character of folks to say, can you acknowledge when people whose careers you might admire or whose ideology you might embrace are accused credibly with substantiation of pretty monstrous behavior? Are you capable of emotionally and intellectually disassociating yourself from that and saying, you know, this cannot be supported. I could play a tape of Shep Smith, who is maybe the Fox News personality with the best reputation, just journalistically, praising Roger Ailes to the hilt after all this came out. And that hasn't really hurt him. Bill O'Reilly has reinvented himself to some extent. He has his own podcast. It's The ecosystem is such that he has a way to uh, try to rehab his career. Maybe he'll get another shot at TV or radio. He's appeared on Fox News. Yeah. And and Sean Hannity has had him back. Like, yeah. I can tell I mean, you. Sean Hannity, the number one rated show on that station. I believe so. Still, his show is still a place of redoubt of... You know, O'Reilly was railroaded and Ailes was railroaded. I mean, these are the Trump. myths. Yeah. Uh, I don't I don't know if you see that. I mean, Weinstein's a powerful guy. His brother, Bob, is still running Miramax, apparently. Mike, uh, Weinstein Company. Yeah, Weinstein Company. Can the same thing happen? Is the left-wing ecosystem as robust in this way as the right-wing is so that you never really die unless you literally die? I don't see Harvey Weinstein returning to play a, a role of any consequence in Hollywood ever again. And I think that right now the Weinstein Company appears to be fighting an existential battle to survive, and I'm not at all clear that they will. David Fokenflick, media correspondent for National Public Radio. Thank you. You bet. And now the spiel. A race for mayor, it's always a fun race. It could get nasty. It could get down low and low down. It's geographically contained. It's like letting a couple of hungry weasels at each other from inside a gunny sack. Or at least that's how Enlightenment thinkers John Locke and Edmund Burke envisioned it. They might have said the sack should be burlap. Not sure. You could tell that everyone wants the candidates to just have at it. That's how debates are organized. That's how the candidates are set against each other. And then the media will play the best parts, which is to say the most contentious parts of the debate. So to Boston, where Mayor Marty Walsh and his rival, city councilor Tito Jackson, held forth. WBUR reports. Their most heated exchange, really the only point when the two candidates addressed each other directly, came when Jackson said he tried to get Walsh to pay attention to racial tensions at Boston Latin School. Walsh said he wished he'd known sooner that there were problems at the city's most prestigious public school. I would have gotten involved. But, but my opponent, but my opponent got two emails from the headmaster and didn't respond. Mayor Walsh, uh, I handed you a documentation that said that racist activity and racist tweets were going on uh, at that school. Uh, your administration did nothing, and that actually showed that you actually didn't believe that black lives mattered at that point. It is absolutely critical 
that, that our young people are held safe and harmless when it comes to these issues. That was a management issue. Now, that was indeed pretty heated. But as you flit about the country monitoring for citywide skirmishes, you actually find that most debates wind up sounding like this, a four-way contest for mayor of Syracuse. Mr. Walsh, have you ever walked in the Onondaga Creek Walk? Yes. 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 All right. Now, I as a voter am now armed. I can now decide. Sometimes a mayoral debate is held up as an example of bombast, as this one. The gloves came off when it came to the Children's Hospital expansion. Children's Hospital is an amazing institution that is making the largest single investment in the history of the city, $550 million to expand their critical services. You know what? I'm going to duck out of Cincinnati Mayor Cranley's answer. I'll just confirm what you suspected about his tone and demeanor. The gloves did not come off. The gloves stayed on. I did, however, find a story from earlier in the year that may yet shake up the Cincinnati mayor race and prove to be a millstone for challenger Yvette Simpson. Cincinnati Inquirer reports, mayoral candidate Yvette Simpson was booed at Cincinnati's Bachfest on Saturday night after she criticized a burlesque dancer for nearly stripping naked during the Sausage Queen competition. We actually have some tape of this event. Now, let me give you some context. Context is necessary. They were judging the Sausage Queen competition. Here's the criteria for being named Sausage Queen. Three rubrics, one personality. All contestants are required to have one, and having a good one is typically helpful. That's from the official description. To presence, the contestant must look good carrying a sausage and have diva tendencies. Talent. What kind of talent should the Sausage Queen display? That is a question that only you can answer. So when one contestant answered it by stripping naked, Yvette Simpson took the mic. This is Facebook tape we're going to play, so squint your ears. She said this. And I want to make a statement. Am I allowed to make a statement? And I don't want to disrespect anybody, but I never want anybody to feel like they have to get naked to get applause here. She went on to say, we women have fought too damn hard and too damn long to feel like we have to strip down to our damn boobs to entertain people. The Inquirer picks it up from there. Simpson's controversial comment sparked much conversation on social media over the weekend, highlighting differences of opinion about burlesque dancing, the meaning of feminism, public shaming versus calling out inappropriate behavior, and Simpson's judgment in saying what she did. Okay, now I would count all that as fireworks, bonafide fireworks, not unlike the fireworks of the Kenosha, Wisconsin mayoral race. There, under a headline in the local paper, Fireworks Fly, which kind of is a job requirement of fireworks, otherwise they're landmines. Under the headline, Fireworks Fly, there was Mayor John Antaramian sticking it to to challenger Bob Johnson, and he gave it right back. I'm not going to allow you to intimidate oh, me stop. into silence you're, because you've been ripping off are, the city of Kenosha taxpayers in the state of Wisconsin. I'm not going to allow it to happen. You have been intimidating everybody and anybody who disagrees with you. Well, you've gone after the press, question. you've gone after us, you've gone after everyone. Enough, Bob. This is what people like about me. They know that I'm not going to back up. When they laugh at that's what people like about me, not a good sign. Though the craziest, the looniest, I will say it, the stupidest mayoral moment was provided right here in New York in the person of Bo Deedle. 
Bo Deedle, former NYPD detective and third party or perhaps technically no party candidate, Bo Deedle. If I had my head in a potato field and I popped it out and listened to this mayor, I'd say I'd vote for him too. But we got four years, he's done nothing. He's promised everything. Taylor, two cities. I heard that when he ran. Taylor, two cities. The only city he's got on a big bucks guy is giving him money. Bo Deedle is an Imus in the Morning Show regular, a former private eye who made problems go away for Roger Ailes, and an answer to the question, what might a bulldog sound like if we put him in an expensive suit? I got a problem. He'll be giving out these passes to all his flunkies there to come into the city so he can get some more campaign contributions. Deedle did attempt outreach of a sort to the Hispanic population with his use of Spanglish. All he can talk about, not my job, not my job. That's what he does all the time. It is his job. And Bo Dito continued to demonstrate a lack of familiarity with the function of a microphone. They're flushing drugs down the toilet and he's letting it happen. Let me finish, please. Because if he worked for me, I would fire him tomorrow. He went on the subway once. He stopped the trains and he got all the homeless off and we saw his own memo. At several point, the debate moderator cut Mr. Deedle's mic. At another point, uh, the debate organizers ejected his supporters, some of his supporters. But still, after an hour of chaos and cacophony, they still felt it was necessary to stick to the script by introducing a wrinkle into the proceedings. Here is moderator Errol Lewis. Now we're going to introduce a different dynamic to the debate. This is in collaboration with our debate partner, Intelligence Squared U.S. The candidates are going to debate in the Oxford style. What that means is that they'll be presented with a resolution, a statement that they must either declare themselves to be for or against. The resolution went to Mr. Deedle, and it did not go well. Here is now the crescendo of his answer. He hired that nincompoop Pompey, Ponty from Maine. The guy was guarding some mooses up there, and he brings him in there, and then he was gone. He was gone for three months. Well, what do you think, Mr. Mayor, why it's not running well? The guy was fishing in Maine when we were paying him on our city cars. And thus ended the Oxford-style debate. After the proceedings, Mr. Deedle repaired to the parlor, where he expounded upon the works of Wordsworth, Shelley, and Yeats. And another thing! Turning and turning in the winding gyra. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Dan Schrader placed third in the greater Covington, Kentucky sausage patty-a-rama. An angry answer to Bachfest and the Sausage Queen. Just producer Mary Wilson applied to be a flunky but she flunked. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, once challenged a drunken Don Rickles to an Oxford-style debate resolved. The ball guy down front is indeed a hockey puck. The gist. Our aim has been always to opine upon the issues of the day, and I trust we have done so to your satisfaction. And all we hear is this and that. And therefore, I shall endeavor to improve. Oopuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>